the incomparable. Number 501. February 2020. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable, another edition of our book club. This is a novella. We are picking books that don't re- you don't need to read like eight other books in the series. You don't need to read like a thousand pages. It's a short book by Becky Chambers, whose books we have liked a lot lately, called To Be Taught, If Fortunate. I love a book with a comma in the title. <laughs> Punctuation. <laughs> could be worse. Could be a colon. Not a colon. That's the most important thing. It's It's just a comma. Uh, mm-hmm. Joining me to talk about To Be Taught, If Fortunate, on this edition of the Book Club, it's the Incomparable Book Club, and that means Scott McNulty is here, because we wouldn't read books without him. Hi, Scott. Hello. I, I like short books. Cannot, cannot lie. lie. <laughs> yeah, I got... I saw... <laughs> Can't Professor like for mm-hmm. anything, unless you make a reference to that. Uh, Aline Sims mm-hmm. is also here. Hello. I, too, like commas. Oh. <laughs> uh, hello to you, David J. Lore. I like all the punctuation. Mm. I'm I'm a fan of all of it. Except a diuresis. Mm, nope. Uh, Eric, nope. <laughs> and Eric Ensign is also here. Hello. <laughs> Hashtag team semicolon. Okay. Ooh. Yay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, semicolons are good. It, it was either going to be that or in tarot bang. It's mm. how you make a smiling winky face. Punctuation club. Uh, it's not as good as book club. Anyway, so uh, to be taught a fortune. So Becky Chambers has written these uh, the series of books that are not quite a series. They're in a sort of shared universe with occasionally connected characters. This is not set in that universe. This is set somewhere uh, different than the uh, long way to a small angry planet enclosed in common orbit and record of a space born few, which have been nominated for awards. And we've talked about them and all of that. To be taught a fortunate is a little bit different. It's about a spaceship full of humans who are sort of like biologically altered based on what planets they're going to. And they have been sent out along with some other spaceships on a mission from Earth to investigate planets that probably have life in our galaxy. So they, they could travel really fast and then they, they're in like a cold sleep and then they wake up and their bodies have been modified for the environment. And then they have to do their investigation of, uh, of various planets and, uh, and, you know, we meet them and we learn about them and they are getting uh, time delayed due to uh, light speed or near light speed travel from time delayed messages from Earth and uh, deciding where they're going to go next. Because uh, as a uh, spoiler, um, there's some question about whether they should fulfill their whole mission or not as they go to these various planets. And it's, so it's a uh, it's about characters and space exploration and uh, what it means to be human, and all of those, all of those good things. It's a good novella. Oh well, we'll yeah. wrap, we'll wrap it up there. <laughs> good night. It's all good. Ready. Excellent. It hits me right where I, you know, I the the core of my sort of science fiction loving person to have this exploration and adventure happening, in, you know, and it's you know there, there's more to it than that, and there's a lot of complexity here, but it is at its core about people traveling to an unknown place and um, using science to learn things about the universe around us. It's very sciencey. I love how thoroughly she considers the science too. It's not like, you know, zip, we have a transporter. Zip, here's a phaser. I mean, I love Trek. Or we a scanner, that. right? Like let's scan or for life scanner. forms. It's like, no, no, you right. gotta land and look for the life forms. That's what you have to do. You can't just scan for it. And and it's so thoroughly imagined and realized and, and how how unusual it would be to wake up with these changes to your body and how they how you use them on the planets. And uh, I mean, that's that's really fascinating. And yet it's also fun. It's not like, 
reading a science textbook at all. It's it's really engaging. And that's a mean trick. Speaking of phasers and, and transporters and what have you, it reminded me very much of Star Trek because yes. it is oh, yeah. it is a, a hopeful book uh, of, about people doing, very competent people doing science and looking for stuff. Uh, and and it, it strikes me as interesting that I find it hopeful because, uh, spoilers for the end of this novella, uh, a disaster happens on Earth and uh, we are unknown if the crew of this spaceship, uh, you know, for, we're left unknowing what the fate of the crew of the spaceship is. But I still think it is, uh, at its core, a hopeful tale of humans trying to expand our knowledge uh, and doing good things through, you know, through science and our own. It's kind of a, it's a humanist story of, you know, the, the power of people, uh, because even the, the space agency that launched these uh uh, ships is is not a, a government based thing. It's kind of a, a grassroots. Effort. Yeah, it's like the Kickstarter uh, of space exploration. Exactly. <laughs> so I think I I like that it's it's a hope because a lot of a lot of the fiction uh, nowadays uh, reflects perhaps the the anxiety of uh, many things that are happening in the world, uh, environmental collapse, political upheaval. Uh, so it's not you know a lot of people aren't writing hopeful things. Uh, so I like to get a little glimmer of hope in the far future. And and what was really interesting was uh, reading this back to back with The Long Sunset by Jack McDevitt, where a, a, a plot point in that is about the struggle to get back into space, to get back into exploration, to get back into uh, investigating beyond your immediate world. And that too was hopeful. It's sort of like, yes, this is something we should continue doing. We should keep doing this. So I thought that was it was kind of an interesting that, you know, one more of these books and it'll be a trend. I don't know. I feel like I probably liked this less than everybody else here. <laughs> um, I enjoyed it, but I don't think I will ever read this again. Whereas her other books, I, I can see myself rereading more than once. Um, mm. This felt to me uh, like it was very well written and I'm glad that I, I read it, but it it wasn't as uh, as character focused as some of her her other books. Um like the, I felt like the characters were decently well developed, but they were kind of not the point. The hope I feel like was the point, which is you know it's a, a good uh, observation, Scott, that this does does feel like a very hopeful hopeful book. But it felt like it was, um, I mean maybe similar to like her her first book. It's not so much a story with a beginning, middle, and end. It felt like a lot of short stories that I read, where it's like a glimpse in a section of somebody's life. And, you know, it, it very much makes sense to start it where it starts and end it where it ends. And, you know, it is that kind of cool, like you don't know what's going to happen at the end. But it didn't it didn't feel to me like, I don't know, uh, like a beginning, middle end sort of story plot journey. Uh, it was it was more like a day in the life, only in this case, it's like several decades in the life because of the <laughs> fact that they're traveling, <laughs> traveling at just just sublight speeds and aging. And it was it was more a, a meditation on on space travel is sort of what it what it felt like to me with, you know, very heavy on the the science and the the thoughts about what science means. Uh, apparently her mom, Nikki Chambers, is uh, an astrobiology educator who right. was her science consultant on all of these books. So that's, I feel like the science not only felt really well grounded, but as I was reading some of the extra stuff in the uh, the bonus edition of the novella um, is, you know, like she, <laughs> she had some real science uh, backing when she was when she was writing it. So like, it's, it's very good. I just, I feel like it was not aimed at me in the same way as, um, 
some of her other stuff was. And that's interesting to me because I I like this so much better than Record of a Spaceborn Few. Um, I did like Record of a Spaceborn Few, but I didn't love it. And this I did love. And I think it's because it was kind of this, this slice of life. And also because in such a short novella, there's a lot of problem solving that needs to be done. And I felt like it was really, I don't know, kind of interesting the way that she did it, where I think kind of hearkening back to what Scott said, where it was more hopeful, you know, some of the other books that we've read, um, like, what was the Kim Stanley Robinson one where it was like the the ship um, oh, was Aurora, gaining sentience? Aurora, Aurora. Aurora. Yeah. Yes. yeah. You know, like that one is like, it's just dismal, right? And so I kind of was, was starting this and like, oh yeah, it's what's going to go wrong in like the first act. And that's not what happens. And I really, I, I liked that. The, it, it let me sit in hope for a little bit before things started to go not according to plan. I appreciated that it was like, oh, hey, look, see, sometimes space travel goes okay. Um, <laughs> and then it turns around and goes really bad. But, um, you know, I, I, I thought that was that was good. And it really, really benefits from being a novella as opposed to mm-hmm. something that she tried to expand out. So I appreciated mm. I, I kind of like this novella renaissance that we're having mm-hmm. where people are like, you know what? This can be 200 pages. It doesn't need to be 7,000 pages and, and it's going to be all right. Yes. I'm so tired of books that just go on and on and on and on. And we get it. We get it. Just tell your story. Finish your story. It doesn't have to be thousands of pages, George Martin. This is the promise of, I feel like, ebooks too, is like it kind of breaks mm-hmm. apart the idea that you have to have a big you know spine essentially on a bookshelf in a bookstore in order to sell and that uh, smaller work doesn't fit because it's not it's not going to be able to uh, be seen and be sold in that way like on uh, you know an ebook store it doesn't matter and and you can and we've seen a lot of science fiction uh, the the murderbot series right that those are all novellas right. essentially and those have been mm-hmm. very successful and so if you're Becky Chambers you could sell a novella to a website or a short story magazine or something like that uh, but once you've got your awards behind you and all of that you can also just go straight out to the readers and say yeah this isn't you know super long but uh pay me this amount of money on the kindle store or whatever and uh, you can read it i like that i like that not everything has to be um you know fitting in the constraints that were there uh back when we were just doing sort of traditional paper book publishing the story can be as long as it needs to be exactly now Mm -hmm. now i am more on uh, Aline's side than Erica's side here. This hit me like, <laughs> right? Like this This is exactly the kind of thing that I would read again in a way that I think um, some of her other books, although also very good, might be a little bit less. I like I like her books. Her, her books are great too. But this one, it did have that thing, like Scott says, it's kind of the optimism about it. I actually really like, again, talking about a lot of this is going to be colored with like, I have thought about a story exactly like this and wrote 100,000 <laughs> words. I have written a book that's very similar to this in terms of the themes. And I will tell you, I will tell you the idea of people who are so committed that they leave home and they know that they may never return. The idea that what happens in the enormous length of time that it takes to travel between stars means that the organization, the very civilization that sent you may not be there 
by the time you get where you're going. And not only that, but you throw in one of the things that this book deals with is this idea of expanding the horizon of human knowledge. And that's one of the problems, right? Is like, the goal here is that you're reporting this information back to a civilization that will get it and, and, and study it and and learn from it and then maybe follow up. And about halfway through this story, you have this whole complicating factor, which is, what are we even doing this for? Is anybody going to see what we're learning? What are we doing? Are we expanding the, I mean, technically we're expanding human knowledge, but it's like only for us. <laughs> yeah, we're humans. <laughs> and nobody else knows. And there's a moment where one other ship basically sends them their database because they're like, we don't know if there's anybody who cares about what we learned. And one of the things that I actually think is maybe she will write another story in this universe. Uh, and that when I was thinking, what would this be like if it was a bigger novel? I thought, one of the things that it would be is that we would also hear about what this other ship discovered because there's another ship that did the same thing and they learned things and they don't have anybody to share it with except this crew. And it's never mentioned, like they never really go through like, what did they learn? What, what mind blowing scientific discoveries did, did they make? But that really, it just, it all, it all really hits me that, that um, being out on the frontier and, and being willing to sacrifice yourself and then having this moment of, of, of doubt where you're saying, well, wait a second, I'm doing all this work to learn and I'm not sure if there's anybody left to share it with. One of the things that I found interesting was you keep saying, you know, yes, it's true that they leave not knowing if they're ever going to come back. But I really appreciated the fact that the intention is that they will come back. That's highly impractical to spend all of that energy to turn around and come back to Earth. Right. But in this, right. that's part of the plan is like you go to five planets and then you go home and then you report back. Which in a way I feel like is somewhat more gut-wrenching uh, in just like the the picturing these people leaving and yes they are leaving their their families and everything behind but they're knowing they're going to come back but they know that when they come back regardless of like what happens exactly. on earth it is going to be super different because it's just going to be so long and everybody they know is going to be dead it'll be so long so much time will have passed that even though they are planning on coming back to earth and being able to live on a, like a biosphere that that will support life and all of that so they won't like sort of die out on a weird planet they're still giving up everything to go do this to for science essentially for science yep and i think it, it's a, a clever thing in the book that the, the 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 space agency sends these missives to them so they're they hop from planet to planet it takes a long time they get an update uh so that serves a couple purposes right they stop so that's when oh something's going on but before they stop uh there's this nice thing where they're realizing they knew i'm sure intellectually that when they got back to earth everyone they knew would be dead and things would be different right but as they see these videos and they notice the changes in the people and the the the, the fashions and things they it, i think it becomes real to them they're like oh that's right you know as we're uh in what is it tuper or stupor or something like that torpor, uh, torpor, torpor. there you go um, yeah, it's like cold sleep kind of thing. Life is going on, yeah. <laughs> uh, on on Earth, and people are doing stuff, and uh, that isn't related to us. So I just thought that was clever. I, I did enjoy, you know, like the first time they get a, a video when when she's just wakened up, and uh, and and she says something like, 
uh, it, I always feel better when I get this and I, I see everything's okay. And I immediately went, oh, that's Chekhov's things are not going to be okay because they stopped getting the videos. Soon. <laughs> sure. Yes. Because she just makes such a point of it. But it is sort of like they're wearing like, what is that? Are they, is that a hat? Why are they, what? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like when you're already out of touch it's with so fashion. Lovely, yeah. This episode of The Incomparables brought to you by ExpressVPN. There are lots of VPN products out there. You probably want one you can feel confident in, one that you can trust. They value your privacy. They don't log your data to make money from selling it like maybe other services might. ExpressVPN has a technology called Trusted Server. It only stores data in RAM, and it's super fast. You can stream HD quality videos with no lag. It's easy to use. Fire up the app, click one button, and you're connected. It's loved by TechRadar, The Verge, CNET, and more. I have used ExpressVPN a lot over the last year plus. Super easy to use. And yes, if I'm out at a random cafe with random Wi-Fi, I will turn it on there. But I've also used it to rehome myself. If I'm traveling internationally, I can get back to the U.S. via ExpressVPN and see like newspaper websites that are blocked in Europe, for example. That's a great use of it. Um, my understanding is that you can also use it to space shift for things like Netflix. But, you know, I'm going to leave that to your conscience. But there are so many different ways to use it. Being secure... Uh, not being tracked by ISPs or creepy people, uh, and, of course, space shifting. Uh, so this is what you need to do. Go to this link right now, expressvpn.com slash Snell, my last name. You'll get an extra three months free on a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash Snell now to learn more. Thank you to ExpressVPN for supporting The Incomparable. I want to talk about the ending, but um, before we get there, we should probably talk about the other... The other the really- uh, but yeah, the rest of it. There, well, there's, there's the uh, so there's the characters, and and the other the other thing that's threaded through this is this idea of identity. That that um, you know, one of the things that Becky Chambers was researching here is this idea that was I think the impetus for this story is the idea of um, modifying the humans. It's like instead of terraforming, mm-hmm. what they're doing is they're reformed. So when they're going to a planet with heavy gravity, they have reinforced muscles and bones and things and like they, their bodies change and, and they all get to go through and our main character, Ariadne, she like is going through the issue of every, she wakes up and she looks in the mirror and it's like, what do I look like? And, and they have to like cope with the fact that their bodies are changing, but it's, so it, it, it's a little bit about identity, like what their self-image is. It's about learning who they are, like through their, through their work. I thought that was an interesting take on space exploration that, that, um, they don't modify the planets they're visiting. They modify themselves in order to fit the planets that they're visiting. It's kind of like the ultimate prime directive. How how do you not interfere? You adapt completely. Yeah. It made me think of, of Star Trek Enterprise. Speaking of Star Trek, um, one of the early episodes, one of the characters has like a pet slug that she takes on board. And then they're going along and the slug's not doing so hot. So she just like leaves it on a planet. I mean, it's heart wrenching, right? She's very upset that she has to leave her slug, but she just leaves her slug on a planet. And I've always been like... What did that do to that poor planet? Yeah. Like yeah. Mm-hmm. introducing it's slug world now. It's slug world. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're just living it, in it. Actually, no, it's it's slugs, but they're acting like Chicago gangsters. Ooh. Um so yeah, so that was uh that that particular episode of Enterprise sticks out in my brain because I just 
did not appreciate that. <laughs> so I was thinking about it the entire time I was reading this is they're, you know, they're so careful about how they, they sanitize everything and um, make sure that they're not contaminating the planet mm-hmm. with their own, you know, germs and, and bacteria and whatever. And uh, I, I thought it was really thoughtful. And it also, I really appreciated that it's a, like a first do no harm thing that mm. sometimes I feel like uh, as throughout the history of humans doing science, um, we've done a lot of harm. And so I kind of appreciated that they live in a future where the mindset is like, let's go study this, but do our best not to impact it. Even though this is a relatively short work, it is broken up because they end up on different planets with different ecosystems and not only are they changing their bodies but they're you know there are very different ecosystems and that leads to sort of like little almost like short stories within the novella which i i liked i enjoyed the fact that they would they would uh you know sort of ring as much as they could out of a planet and then they would just go to the next planet and have to deal with their adaptations and also deal with a completely different environment and um it's fun from a kind of world building perspective because you've got you know i mean like literally it's like what is this world going to be like and how is it different from the last and that some of them are are uh kind of amazing and beautiful and others of them are, are kind of crappy and not, not so great <laughs> and the, but they have to the, you know th- this is the path that they've chosen and so they have to deal with them all and i really liked that um that uh, there's that variety too, and that fits in, you know, because we're grinding with them. We're like, you know, our first planet is their first planet, our third planet is their third planet, and they're comparing it more to the previous ones. And um, I, I just, I, I think that was really good. I, I enjoyed that a lot to have the variety in the story of the different, like the different settings, and them learning about the different settings. I liked how she, like, really doled it out in like I I felt like I was on a journey of discovery with them and I also felt like I was discovering their backstory sort of at the same time because at the start you know she's she's talking to to the people of earth who are getting this message sometime in the future but she's also talking to us as the readers so uh, we don't really have a huge handle on exactly what their society even is that they came from and neither will the people who are the intended recipients of this uh, and t- until they go through the whole story and and as she goes along she tells different little bits of the past um, you know th- throughout like you get you get glimpses of the the world that they came from and the thought processes of the people that uh, that sent them up, which and I totally agree with with Aline that just the idea of of these people being so thoughtful about their place in the universe. And it's like this is this is a mindset that is the, the polar opposite of entitlement. It's like we are we are not entitled. We are uh, citizens of the universe to be super cheesy <laughs> and, you know, t- t- taking their place. uh in that way. So just kind of learning slowly about the society that that uh, created that was was awesome. And I also like uh, when they are all sparkly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As did Ariadne. Yeah. Yep. It was awesome. And it was well, I loved that it was it was like, here is a scientific reason why we are sparkly. Also, it's glitter. I love being mm. glittery. I thought that was delightful. I really love how human they all are, even though they're they're idealistic in 
kind of what they're doing, we also see a lot of the humanity in them. And I really, really love that. And I love that Ariadne is our narrator and that we get to get her reactions because she seems to be the most single purpose, right? Because everybody else has a job where she's just kind of there to pilot right. and to help where necessary. And so I feel like we get a more rounded view of everything with her being the narrator. Well, she's mm-hmm. like us, right? She's She's yeah. got a little bit of remove from the people who are a little more active. Um, and that that's powerful. Yeah, you the um, on one of the planets, what happens is there's an accident where basically like a critter gets in a box that they're loading back on when they're going to leave. And there's this I, I it really kind of faked me out because it yeah. um, it, it mm-hmm. made it seem like there was this like, oh, and then the horrible tragedy happened. And I'm yes. thinking, oh, well, here we are. Mm-hmm. Here's the plot twist. This is going to be like somebody dies and it's just terrible and all that. And instead, what it really is, is that we made a mistake and an animal got in our, you know, broke quarantine and got in a box and hid. And they basically had to kill the animal and they feel really bad about it. That's, 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 and, and I, yeah. I like that because I think Becky Chambers, she's so empathetic as a writer. Like you yes. always feel for her characters and they, they, they feel for one another. And um, that, that's a really great moment where it doesn't really in the plot jeopardize the mission so much as it makes them feel bad because they made a mistake and somebody a creature suffered because of their mistake. And that, I think that sets it all about Becky Chambers as a writer, that, that she has that degree of care for the, like the emotions of her, for her having them have to suffer through that is enough of a trauma like that, that just feeling bad, like she knows her characters feel bad about that. And we feel bad about it that. And I, I think that's a, um, it speaks well of her as a writer. I also had a moment where I thought they would keep it as a pet. So they'd be like, well, we can't put it back. So maybe we just keep it. And I was like, yes, please keep the cute little thing. And then they describe. Yeah, they have to shoot it a bunch of times. Yeah. What happens? And I was How hard like, it was to kill. Oh. That's a great Star Trek moment, right? Because it's like, okay, phasers to kill. We're going to meet. We're going to do this. It's going to be really uh, humane. We're not. And then they're like, oh, we had to shoot it like a dozen times before it yeah, finally died. It was, it's like, oh, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you mentioned mm. you mentioned that that scene and thinking, oh God, here's here's the turn, here's the twist, everything's going to go terribly now. And like I sort of had that feeling hanging over me through the entire book. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, at the beginning you you get the the framing that they're sending this back to Earth and telling a story and they're still out there somewhere. Like it's it's been sent from this fourth planet that they've they've been on. And I was just expecting that like at some point something is going to go terribly terribly wrong with their with their ship and i mean there were definitely that was one example there were some other things that went wrong like mm-hmm. the planet that they landed on and then couldn't take off again for several months because the weather was so bad with weird animals <laughs> stuck all over their hull so they couldn't mm-hmm. see out which was a very they all get skirt crazy <laughs> and that's a, again a little like episode within the storyline yep so i both liked and disliked that feeling of you know, it was it was a very effective, I felt like, a narrative device to to make me to make me scared all the time that something terrible is going to happen. Uh, so it, it definitely kept me turning the pages. Um, but then once I got to the the end and, you know, f- sort of saw how it wrapped up and I'm sure we'll talk about that. I just now I'm like, oh, OK, 
I don't think I need to go through that again. <laughs> yeah, and especially I'm real I'm really sensitive to sound and she describes like the screeching noise that these yes. things make oh, and it God. just like oh, thinking yeah. about listening to that 24 hours a day for 4 months is just <laughs> Hey, you guys like porgs? Well, imagine if there were lots and lots of porgs stuck yeah. to the outside of your ship so you couldn't go anywhere or see anything. It's mm. like having newborn babies. Oh. Yeah, I remember. I remember oh, the dear. our first one would not sleep for a couple of weeks, yeah. and it was maddening. Although she never <laughs> mentioned anything about earplugs, like right or sound machines. Like I just kept thinking about this, just the seeing thing, where it's like it is light out there, but but the whole place is dark because there's just weird creatures covering your windows, just attached to it. <sighs> it's, it's just like <sighs> yeah. Yeah, it's super creepy. Almost as creepy as having just like screaming babies around, right? Am I right? <laughs> that does sound great. That's very creepy. creepy. That's very creepy. creepy. Little creatures. <laughs> they are so tiny. They're horrifying creatures. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I really like the. I mean, I mentioned it earlier, but I really like that moment where they get the message from um, Locky Five, which is the the idea here is that they're like the last mission out, and now they've heard from the previous mission before them. And they've gotten home and there's no one around. So like, obviously that, I mean, I'm sure there are people on earth, but like the electro, there was like a solar storm and the electromagnetic like infrastructure is wrecked and it's unclear what's down on the planet. And they, uh, they communicate back that like, here's our database. We're going to try to land, but we've got some yellow lights here. So we may not be, be able to make it. And even if they do make it, they may not be able to communicate. We That's left kind of open that maybe they didn't make it down or maybe they did make it down, but there's nothing after that because there's civilization is not what it was that's down on the surface. But regardless, that's uh, it, it's a, a chilling kind of thing because it's like you're the last ones out here. What are you going to do? Um, and I also like the idea that it's this it's, it's almost like a relay, like all of a sudden they're the holder of human knowledge. Like they don't know if there's anybody else at all in terms of humanity and certainly that's got this level of information out there and 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 to put this on this small group of people who are completely isolated on a planet in you know who knows where far away planet um i just i i love that moment i like how how terrifying it is it's almost like vertiginous it's like oh you know now wait a second i didn't sign up to be the last envoy of humanity in the galaxy having to decide what happens to human knowledge but that's the position that they're put in um, right at the end. And um, I really liked that. I really enjoyed that. Um, I mean, I'm sure they didn't as characters because it's it's really bad. But like, I like that idea of like, well, what are you going to do now? Like, we have our, the, the life we want to live and the responsibilities we agreed to. And then this other responsibility that's been thrust on us that we, that we didn't agree to. And, and I like the fact that they tell this whole story to Earth and basically say, we are willing to do either continue our mission and just kind of find out, delve more into the secrets of the universe uh, and never come back to Earth and die doing it, or come back to Earth and help you tell us. Right. And I and I like that it's it's a choice for the reader. The moment that that comes up, I'm like, oh, oh this is going to be like 
it's going to be that, isn't it? It's going to be that we don't know what the choice is and we don't know what's going to happen. And I, I love, I kind of love endings like that. And it's oh, very yeah. much like you, what do you think? What do you think the ending is going to be? <laughs> the end. What would you choose? Uh-huh. What would you say yeah, to them? Choose your own um, would you tell them that Tony Soprano is dead or not? But what they don't decide, they don't decide to go to, so, so the way that this story ends is that there is a planet that they're close-ish to that they could go to that was never put on any of the surveys because it's too far out. But they've gone so far now that they could go even further and go there. If they do that, they'll never be able to get back to Earth. Their fuel will be out. That'll be the end of their journey. But it's this its this system that's got three, it looks like, habitable planets, including one that looks like it might be a fantastic sort of Earth analog. So, like, it's such a rich environment to be explored, and uh, that would be great. But at the same time, they are committing to never, ever returning to Earth. And then the, their alternative is they can turn around and go back to Earth, but they don't know what will be there for them when they get there. And what they don't do is decide, right? What they do right. is send a message to Earth that says, like, let us know what you're thinking. <laughs> and if Earth doesn't respond, do they say, like, if Earth doesn't respond, they'll just basically stay there until they die? They decide they, yeah. Yeah, they decide that they're, they're not going to make a decision. They're going to bet on there being somebody on Earth and that if there's nobody left on Earth, they're not going to even bother moving on. I think that's an interesting, I think that's an interesting choice because I would have like wanted to set an alarm clock that said, okay, if if you don't hear anybody in 15 years, we're just going to go to the cool place where there's fancy planets. (laughs) Right. You should always go to the cool place where there are fancy planets. Fancy planets are the best, right? (laughs) You know, some planets are fancier than others. So, you know, what did everybody think about, about how that, that approach, you know, what, what should, what should they do? What, what is it about the decision to like wait and, and hang it all on whether there are people back on earth listening to them? It's, it's kind of interesting that, you know, again, the, the impetus is, you know, should we go out into space? Should we be hopeful? Should we be exploratory? And they finally are. Uh, and now it, again, it gives you the choice. What would you say in that situation? What would you tell them to do? And it's kind of leaving that question of hope and exploration up to you. What would you do in mm. that situation? What mm. would you do if you were the people on Earth? I like that. I, I It's a, a well-known belief of mine that humans are awful. But I think <laughs> that... I know this about you. Mm-hmm. See, there you go. In, in this situation, it is their, their duty to go back to Earth and see if they can help. Because they know... Like everyone on Earth is not dead, uh, right? So when they, they there are people there that they can help, and I think they probably should do that. Could they though? They're four people. Yeah, but they have so much. They have knowledge that they even if they could help a few people. The knowledge is already sent. It says at the very beginning of the book that they've sent back all of their files and all of the science. So Earth already has all that. Well, if if Earth has a receiver, right? The thing is that everything, all the electronics have been wiped uh, out. Ah, gotcha. Okay. And so they may have sent it back to Earth, but there may be mm, no way there true. are people to receive it. But they may. Not not be able to receive it. Good point. You win, Scott. Yes. <laughs> it's a tough it's a tough question. I I always I mean this this came up with um Elon Musk talking about going to Mars, right? And this and, and it became this conversation about like would you go to Mars if there wasn't a way back? And people are like, well that's a uh that's a suicide mission. Like you're never coming back. And and then somebody pointed out that like people would go to the new world and they had no plans of coming back and they're like literally Mm -hmm. i'm going to say goodbye i'm going to get on the ship and then we're going to go and i'm never going to be seen again and i was thinking about that with this crew because it's the same sort of thing like they've been they've sort of agreed to a return trip which as we've said it's going to not be the place they left it's going to be very very different 
but uh, at least it's something. That's true. And in many ways, they were never going to go back to where they came from. They were always going to return to a different place, right? Right. But still, it's that it's that trade where you're you're saying, are you willing to do that to commit to like, we're going to go to this place that's very interesting. And it means we are literally never, you know, wherever wh- where we're going to die is on an alien planet. And and maybe that's worth it. And maybe that's not. I think that's an interesting question of like, how committed are you to this science, cause of furthering human knowledge that you're willing to not kind of retire to whatever is left on earth and be able to just walk around and breathe the air and live the rest of your your lifespan there versus just who knows what you're going to be dealing with on an alien planet. But but I think the point is that at this point, Earth itself now is an alien planet, right? By the time they get Mm -hmm. back, it would be so different, even even if the disaster hadn't happened. it would be so different that it's it's an interesting choice, right? Because both there are unknown, big unknowns in either one. So, mm-hmm. and speaking of the unknowns, like you know, if they do choose to go on, you know, who knows what they will find on that other planet that has you know greenhouse gases uh, quite a bit? Uh, maybe there's another civilization. Mm-hmm. Maybe they will find, maybe they'll find exactly the knowledge that Earth actually needs to be able to, you know, get out from under whatever catastrophe stuff that they are that they are underneath so th- there's no easy answer and it's i find it i found it really interesting like i did not see i thought that they were just going to go off into the sunset and that was going to be the end i did not see it coming that they were going to uh, basically just opt out of making the choice and just put themselves to sleep <laughs> until earth makes the choice for them or not and they just die in their sleep um you know it's it's the way to sort of shift responsibility mm-hmm. i guess mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah i don't i don't love that part of it i i kind of was hoping that they would like i said set an alarm clock and basically be like we'll give you mm-hmm. as long as we can and then we're gonna go and do this last thing and that'll be our last mission because you're right there it's very tantalizing she's crafted this so that the place that they could go is extremely tantalizing um talk about our optimism that's another thing that that struck me again comparing it to my own lack of optimism about humanity (laughs) scott hello um (laughs) which is that she has a disaster befall the earth where there's a solar flare and it zaps all the technology and they're like oh no we were worried that might happen and um i think that's actually a very optimistic thing because she wants to put her characters in this moment of like uh, I'm not sure what we should do. Should we go back to Earth? It's un- it's unclear. But she does it through a natural disaster, which is like again, I think very nice because it would be, I should say, pretty easy to write a version of this story where everything just goes to hell while they're gone <laughs> and human civilization yeah. destroys itself. But you have a different conversation then. Now you're like, wow, those people screwed everything up. Do we even want to bother going back there? And here it's more right. like right. they were victims of this thing and do we go back and help them or or do we do we press on and what's the state of humanity? And I, that changes the this final equation a little bit, but I did find it kind of sweetly optimistic that like you can go away from your crowdfunded space program for a few hundred years and and be optimistic that it's all going to be okay where like you know i can't even fund a kickstarter and get the product so you know (laughs) good luck the other thing that's that's kind of interesting about it is that uh it's sort of a given the the fluidity of how their bodies change how their personalities change because of those changes and She does talk about how hard it is sometimes to keep hold of your humanity when you're changing like that, Mm. to remember who you are when when your eyeballs are doing this and your 
body is turning all glittery and you're, you know, that's kind of an, an interesting question. It's like, how truly human are they anymore? Are they somewhat alien just by virtue of what they've done to themselves? Um, how does that affect their psyches? And so, you know, the idea of going back to earth is like, well, this is, this is who we are at base. Are we, are we evolved or are we going backwards? And the idea that all of those changes will just go away if they take off that that patch that right. that is right. you know it, it, but but there's a, a very interesting passage at one point where she talks about you know uh, butterflies and uh, and worms and, and the chrysalis and and that sort of thing and how right. even mm-hmm. if her body changes back like she has been through so many different iterations of who she is right. especially right. after the uh, the the awful planet with the the screaming aliens and. Uh, and the wind and stuff and how after that like she just really feels like a completely different person because of what she's been through so so yeah even if they do go back to earth it's not it's not the earth that they left and they are not the people who left that earth right my favorite scene in the book happens on earth before uh, well i guess they've left when the book starts but uh before their their voyage starts uh mostly because I am an IT guy, and uh, I think I share <laughs> with many IT people the the fact that uh, you know the astronauts get the glory. Uh, nobody cares who's running the mainframe, right? Uh, and so there's this uh, scene where she talks about how on the campus of each of the the space program bases they plant a tree for uh every new graduate of the program that's going to go off into space uh which is nice and you're like oh yeah of course the the astronauts get some kind of monument it's very nice uh but the you you the real monument is underneath where you see the root systems and it's behind this glass thing and the the light lowers and then all the names of the people who are the technicians and the people who sent money mm. to uh support the program are mm. highlighted uh because right. that is you know they are the 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 earth and the the nutrients that are supporting and making possible what the astronauts are doing and that just struck me for many reasons because I I feel like one of those little <laughs> names on the wall you're uh, a root many Scott. times in life I'm a root it's true there there is a beautiful line where where she says you know it's it's the tree that reaches to the stars but it's the ground that's important yep exactly. I actually I'm the ground <laughs> one nice thing about uh, about <laughs> about ebooks is that you can highlight things and i actually that that is was also a scene that i really really liked where it says yep. viewed in this way you can never again see a tree as a single entity despite its visual dominance it towers mm. it's impressive but in the end it's a fragile endeavor that can only stand thanks to the contributions of many we celebrate the tree that tr- stretches to the sky but it is the ground we should ultimately thank mm. and i just i loved that so much and then there was a really cool thing like about like real close to the end when they fir- when they get to that last planet that they're on votum and they all just sort of get out of the ship and stand there looking out and uh, uh here it is it says uh, chikondi and i walked panting up beside them i leaned my helmet against his arm he offered his hand to elena she took it gladly we became a molecule distinct components attached by natural bonds and it was just like this perfect hmm. uh, like a bookend to the book because you had the you know the the passage about the trees and how everything is actually connected together even though it might look like it's separate and then the people who are the main characters of this book do the very same thing um, toward the end before they make their their non decision <laughs> <laughs> cowards <laughs> non decision 
the only way to win is not to play. Well, I would definitely, as I would like all the books of, of Becky Chambers, I would definitely recommend this to people, especially based on what we've said here. Like if you like the idea of sort of space exploration and people kind of on the edge figuring things out. And there's a lot we haven't really talked about, but like there's a lot of science detail here where they're like they're using the scientific mm-hmm. method to learn how does this life cycle work? How does the biology on this planet work? And that that's the... The other thing that's happening alongside the drama of their connection to Earth and the uh, interpersonal relationships with these characters is the science, is learning right. about wh- how is this planet different and how does it work. And some of those places are more interesting and some are less interesting. And they're using, because they're trying to infer from the geography of the planet whether there might be places where they could find life at one point. And they're, you know, you get those moments of discovery that are very exciting where they're like, I cannot believe that I just found this thing. And that happens repeatedly in this. Like, that, there, there's a lot in here in a, a small amount of space for uh, mm-hmm. anybody who likes that kind of story. I, I feel like it is a really kind of wonderfully concentrated space exploration and thrill of scientific discovery uh, story Mm. from somebody who also is, as her track record uh, of novels shows, um, very good with with characters, too. It's a good combination. Mm -hmm. I I like that there's no villain. There's no, you know, Mm -hmm. it's not what you think when you think, oh, space adventure. It's it's the science adventure. Yeah. Well, there's that animal that sneaks aboard, though. <laughs> well, that's true. That's, yeah, that's the, the villain, villain who is shot 12 times before it dies. Uh-huh. Or the screaming baby, baby aliens, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but she and she tells it very elegantly, too, because, you know, this this missive is being sent back to people who may or may not be laypersons on Earth. And I certainly right. am one when it comes to science uh, as a reader. So I appreciated that, that she explains things like if you don't know anything about science, you're going to learn stuff from this book. Like if you didn't already know what a tidal lock was when it comes to, you know, astrophysics, you will after you've read this book because she gives such a clear, simple explanation for it. Um, so like there's there's a lot of cool science learning sort of hidden in here that you don't even necessarily recognize that you're learning until you've already learned it, which is, you know, it, it felt like a really good textbook at times. And I don't mean that as an insult. <laughs> no, I was I was thinking that she would be an excellent like textbook editor because like the whole explanation of left and right handed molecules yes. right. is just right. like... It's so good. And I got to feel really smart because I already knew that. Ah. <laughs> like, I understand what she's talking about. And that's really cool. But she, that's how I felt with the title lock. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was it, it's really, really good. And I was like, wow, if my science textbooks had been this interesting, maybe I would have gone that direction instead of, you know, toward my having opinions about commas and semicolons. I think the... um other thing I wanted to mention about the way Becky Chambers writes is that The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, which is where we all kind of discovered her, um, is a, an unusually structured novel in that it's kind of um, the way I've always described it and I have on this podcast is it's like a, it's episodic. It's a series of episodes. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a season of a TV show about people on a spaceship. Mm-hmm. And like every chapter is sort of like, and then this thing happened and then this thing happened. It's not uh, there. there is an overarching you know story, but it is not really the point and uh, doesn't really come into play until the end. Um, And this, I was reading and thinking, this is like that, except there are only four episodes of it. That's why it's a novella and not a novel. But it is like that in the sense that there is a progression, but also 
it's sort of like, and then this happened on this planet. And then now let's, let me tell you about what happened on the next planet. And you know what? I it's like a that. It's a miniseries. Yeah. I like that though. I like that. I like that yeah. feel. Not every story has to be one kind of continuous blur where everything is the same. You, you can, there's some delight in telling a series of little things that also connect and have extra meaning when you connect them all. I think that's why this is one I'm probably not going to return to because, yeah, of her her other books, the one that I like so much more than the other two is is The Close and Common Orbit, the middle one, which is definitely structured the most uh, traditionally sure, in terms sure. of, you know, story. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but this and this did feel feel more like those those other ones. So. I'm glad you guys got to experience for that. For those, it's good regardless. <laughs> I think for anybody, but oh, yeah. yes, there. For sure, she's she's. You should read Becky Chambers' stuff. She's a, a real find. I'm I'm very excited that that uh, she's getting the acclaim she has. It's one of those writers that starts showing up on the short list, and you're like, oh no, oh uh, yeah, she's really good. <laughs> like, yeah, mm-hmm. she's really good. Before we go, I want to go around really quickly and see if there's anything that anybody has read or is reading that they'd like to mention uh, for uh, people who are looking for the next thing to read. Um, Aline, anything that you're reading or have just read that you'd like to mention? Well, I'm in the middle of my trek through Discworld. So I've read two of those at this point. And I'm still working through, I'll be listening to the final or most recent zombie fallout novel now that I've finished this book. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I don't have anything new Nothing since new? last time. All right, that's fine. It's it's a quick turnaround. David, anything new? Uh, well, I just, like I said, I just did The Long Sunset by Jack McDevitt. Now, I didn't even know also... that was that there was another one of those books in that series. So I, I while, oh, yeah. once again, a book club episode where I buy books <laughs> while we're talking. <laughs> it's, it's Priscilla Hutchins yeah. out exploring again. Sandwiches. There's a sandwiches, you know, munching on sandwiches, sandwiches as you sandwiches. do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, getting getting that hard science fix. Um, the Paragon Hotel by Lindsay Fay, uh, who has written, she's written several uh, novels set in the 1800s in New York that are really wonderful mysteries. And this is set in 1921 Portland, Oregon. Uh, and it's it's actually rooted in some real incidents and things you would not have expected in Portland. And if you like the 1920s and stories set there, if you like a serious story that's told with a little bit of wit on the side, it's great. It's wonderful. She is a wonderful writer. Um, uh, just for a popcorn read, I just read Robert B. Parker's blood feud by Mike Lupica, where uh, just like all the other Robert B. Parker series, uh, now they're bringing back Sonny Randall, the PI that Parker originally created to uh, turn into a series of things with Helen Hunt that never happened. Hmm. And uh, and finally, uh, Just the Funny Parts by Nell Scovell. Ah. Uh, she's a wonderful writer. Uh, you, she's written for Newhart and Space Ghost Coast to Coast. You you will know you may know her from her articles about uh, working for David Letterman, David Letterman and, yeah. and the uh, and the initial kind of hostile workplace environment, and then Letterman's uh, understanding of what was wrong with that period and their kind of like reconnection later. Very interesting set of articles. Oh yeah, this, that. this <laughs> most recent one has been fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And so if if you've read that article, this book tells more of her life in Hollywood and behind the scenes. And it is fascinating. And she's very funny. Erica? Well, at the end of our our last book club episode, I said I was going to read The Lights Go Out in Litchford by Paul Cornell. And I did. Uh, And it was (laughs) (laughs) it was so good. It made me cry. It uh, was just 
it was really beautiful and had a bit of a cliffhanger at the end. So that was excellent. I also recently read, uh, I think it's, I think it might actually be another novella, this novella sense, mm. um, called Ragged Alice by Gareth L. Powell. And it is a, a short book about a um, police detective. Uh, she's a DCI in a small Welsh town. And she has this ability to sort of see into people's minds slash souls to just sort of like it's sort of like a visual indication of fire so like you know does it burn clean and bright is it kind of dim and grungy that sort of thing just to get an idea what like people are are actually like and there's a she doesn't really understand why she has it and she doesn't quite know what happened to her mom uh, who was murdered when she was a child and all of these things sort of come together um and uh and yeah it's it's pretty fascinating she's coming back to her hometown uh, which is a place that she like split from on purpose uh like 15 years before so um, i really enjoyed that i like uh, urban fantasy quite a bit mm. so that was good and uh, i am also as i said last time still working my way through all the novels of sarah addison allen so since the last time we talked i have finished the peach keeper and gotten most of the way through lost lake uh, and i'm still enjoying all of those comfort reads mm. for myself very very much so many books, so many books. Scott, what about you? Uh, I don't recall what I said I was reading in the last episode, but uh, <laughs> I did just finish uh, something that I know you read, Jason, that is certainly not a novella, uh, Fall or Dodge in Hell, Neil <laughs> Stevenson's latest book, which is, what, 18,000 pages a bil- long? About a billion uh, pages <laughs> long, yeah. <laughs> and it is, Jason and I have talked about this, and, and Jason, you you posted a recently there read There is a recently this. read, yeah, about it, which says yeah, you and I had the exact same reaction to it mm-hmm. it is it is a uh, 40% of it is like I think the best Neil Stevenson I have read uh, and then the other 60% makes you possibly regret reading the first 40% <laughs> yep. yeah. and, and the shame of it okay. is it, I mean the good news is that the, that 40% is largely concentrated in the first 30% of the book 25% Oof. of the book and then there, there's the rest of it is sort of scattered unfortunately throughout the other you part yes which is which, which is sort of how i feel about stevenson books mm. every time i pick well, them up well let me tell you this I've is never very, finished one this is very stevensonian in that there are parts it of it is. that there are parts of it that are really brilliant like the the mm. genuinely the there's there it says things about about like preparation for for death and about grief of people mm-hmm. who've died there's a, a, a large so section that is about how our country is a disaster <laughs> and is only going to get worse that's really great and brilliant yeah. and, and then the, the st- stuff about uh moab and it is just amazing yeah uh, and um, and then there's this weird one? like greek myth infused <laughs> fantasy setting that is just oh. atrociously bad oh it's not good yeah um it, it is not good. Yeah. And so, and I think you, you struggle with, you can't recommend this book. I, yeah. I remember you saying because of that. And I struggle with it as well because parts of it are so good. Right. Uh, but uh, overall, it's probably not worth the effort of reading it, yeah. sadly. Yeah. Uh, a book that is short and, uh, good uh, is Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, which is uh, a, a Polish <laughs> book about uh, the title's an, not short. an elderly woman That's the whole who, story right there. It's who's just, living <laughs> it's in, in a title. remote village and uh, one of her neighbors tr- is murdered and she gets into the, some some uh, interesting antics mm. um, and, and she may or may not have dementia. So uh, it, it's an interesting book. So I, I recommend it and short. So All right. Uh, 
So those are those are the two. Okay, good. I have uh, I have three I want to mention. Um, I read Voyage by Stephen Baxter, which was actually published in 1996. And I read it because I've been watching For All Mankind, which is an Apple TV show about an alternate history of the space program. And Stephen Baxter's Voyage is also an alternate history about the space program. It is uh, listed as book one in the NASA trilogy. Those are a structural trilogy. There is no connection. It's a standalone novel. Um, and it is it goes backward and forward in time. So there there are two time frames. There's the mission, the NASA mission to Mars, and all of the alternate time stuff that ha- had to happen to lead to the NASA mission to Mars. And those happen simultaneously, you know, back and forth in this book. It's really good. It's very different kind of view of it from for all mankind but it is the same sort of result which is there are the timeline changes a little bit and uh nasa instead of sort of shutting everything down and building the space shuttle kind of uh, puts their foot on the gas because of the political winds of the time to uh change the apollo program into a new uh mars program and uh it was fun it's 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 long it is a long book but i liked it i enjoyed it and it was fun to compare and contrast it with for all mankind um, I read Infinite Detail by Tim Mon, which was on a list, the Guardian's list of best science fiction books of the year. Um, I uh, Scott and I talked about this one too a little bit. Um, I thought it was okay. Uh, I didn't hate it at all. I thought it was okay. It feels a little bit to me like kind of uh, Cory Doctorow and William Gibson and maybe a co- couple other kind of contemporary science fiction writers put in a blender. Um, it's a... Uh, apocalypse book uh sort of a soft apocalypse and it has two time frames it's got right before and and after um and the idea is sort of like we have all these connected devices it's and it's set a little bit in the future from today where our reliance on these connected devices is even greater and then they all turn off and society falls apart and um and then it tells this story um i liked it but the, the truth is i feel like i've read other books that do this subject better um oh i'll even mention kim stanley robinson's uh book set in sort of post-apocalyptic new york or annalee newitz's book that's set in the sort of post-apocalyptic uh future and that book that we read about the polar bear and the orca (laughs) city right like i feel like i've read (laughs) other books that that i liked a lot better that discussed these same issues so i couldn't muster the enthusiasm for it that um that the guardian science fiction editor did um but it's not bad it's it's not bad it's just it didn't it didn't hit me um like the like it hit the guardian and um the last book that I wanted to mention is Annalie Newitz, speaking of her, um, and I really liked her book, uh, Autonomous, which some of this panel didn't like, and some some did, um, and I liked it. And, and some didn't read it's yet. It's the movie with weird, or movie, that's the book with the weird, like, robot sex and stuff. Anyway, um, I liked it. <laughs> but The Future of Another Timeline uh, by Annalie Newitz, I, uh, I really like it. It is a... Uh, like our book that we talked about last time, it is about a 
a war between factions trying to rewrite a timeline. Uh, it's very different in the way it's written, of course. It is not the poetic thing of this is how you lose the time war. But um, I like a lot of the details of how the time travel system works. And it has this delightful bit about Annalie Newitz is about two years older than my wife and they grew up in the same town. And so a lot of the references and the book, a large portion of the book is set in the early 90s in Irvine, California. And I get all the references because <laughs> that's where my wife grew up in that time frame. So oh, um, wow. that that amuses me enormously. So uh, thumbs up, Annalie Newitz, uh, Future of Another Timeline. A lot of fun. And it is set in like, it's set in uh, 2020 and t- 1992 and also like the 1880s and also around uh, like 10 BC and like it's all over the place uh, wow. in a lot of in- interesting ways and uh, the, the the overarching plot is basically there's a group of incels from the 23rd century who have decided to use the time travel system to uh, make uh, women's rights disappear and uh, the women <laughs> Uh, don't appreciate them. <laughs> and there's your there's your battle. It's good. It's really good. Uh, I think that's it. Anything? Did did anybody forget to mention a book? Because sometimes that happens. <laughs> I did Watchmen. Forget. Oh, go for it, Eileen. That's all. Watchmen. Oh, you. Re- <laughs> It is a book. Did you read Watchmen? Did you had you not read it before? <laughs> it oh boy, if we're just mentioning books. Oh yeah, hey. I've never, I've never read it. So I um, am watching the the series that takes place after the book takes place. So I'm like, maybe I should get up to speed because I watched the movie, but I don't remember it. So I think I'm through the first two issues oh. of that. A lot of twists and turns to come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say I didn't forget to mention a book, but I just I, pinged my memory when Scott was saying that the character in one of his books uh, may or may not have dementia. That was that was one of the main sort of plot threads of the lights go out in Litchford. Is one of the main characters is older and has dementia, and it was just a, a really I thought sensitive. Um, deal it was very sensitively dealt with in that book, and it was in part based on uh, Paul Cornell's. Experience with his own mother, yeah. and it just like I had a similar life experience as Paul did, um, helping take care of my grandmother when she got to that point in her life, and uh, it was I found it really touching the way that it was handled, both from the way that the other characters saw this character and how they felt about what was happening, and then also from her own like inside experience. It seemed to me like that's if if this happens to me because it runs in my family, that is that is totally the way. <laughs> I'm going to feel about it um, from the other side. So uh, thumbs up on, on that front. All right. I'm going to close up this book club, but I will tell you, dear book club listeners, we're going to try to do this more often. We're going to try to like say, hey, what should we read? Let's do a book club on it and not just wait for the Hugo nominations to come out. Um, here, here. And the Nebula Yay. nominations. Although, oh my God, they're going to come out and then I'm going to have like nine books Soon. to read again. Maybe we'll have <laughs> yep. read some of this stuff Maybe already because if we'll be we doing are, this more often. If we are more active about it, we will have That's read right. some of them. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to be reading the best novella <laughs> nominees and then still have to read the novels. <laughs> uh, all right. I would like to thank my guests for being on this episode of the book club. It's uh, been great. Aline Sims, thank you. 
I love book clubs. Yay, book club. David J. Lore, thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm just trying to decide, should I go forward or back? Mm. I, I don't know. I don't know. Erica Ensign, you also need to make that decision. You just Do you set the alarm clock or do you let uh, Earth mm. wake you up when uh, they want? I am, I am not good with decisions, so I would probably just let Earth just, You're going to be like the characters or, the book. Fair enough. Fair enough. Or I would just go somewhere where I could be sparkly. Yeah. That's what I want. Oh. Mm. Yeah. So that's a strong point. Same. Same. And Scott McNulty, thank you. Thank you, human. So, mm? <laughs> <laughs> oh no he's giving everything away now so many, no. so much time with babies that it does it this explains team. so much and uh, thanks to everybody out there humans who are listening to this episode and also non-humans who are listening to this episode hmm? Hmm? I'm going to be oh. inclusive alien inclusive right here uh, nice. we will see you on the incomparable next week but until then goodbye goodbye